We're first from Psalm 45. This is a messianic psalm. I'll just mention that so that you can recognize what I'm speaking about when I get to the sermon. This is a messianic psalm in praise of the Messiah. And yet, if you follow the pronouns carefully, you, you start to see that there's more to this Messiah than, than him being merely human. You see him also being God. And you see an intricate relationship with God expressed in this. So you can pay attention to that as we read through this psalm. Psalm 45, beginning in verse 1. <coughs> my heart overflows with a pleasing theme. I address verse, my verses to the king. My tongue is like the pen of a ready scribe. You are the most handsome of the sons of men. Grace is poured upon your lips. Therefore God has blessed you forever. Gird your sword on, on your thigh, O mighty one, in your splendor and majesty. In your majesty, ride out victoriously for the cause of truth and meekness and righteousness. Let your right hand teach you awesome deeds. Your arrows are sharp. In the heart of the king's enemies, the peoples fall under you. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of your kingdom is a scepter of of uprightness. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. Your robes are all fragrant with myrrh and aloes and cassia. From ivory palaces, stringed instruments make you glad. Daughters of kings are among your ladies of honor. At your right hand stands the queen in gold of Ophir. Hear, O daughter, and consider, and incline your ear. Forget your people and your father's house, and the king will desire your beauty. Since he is your Lord, bow to him. The people of Tyre will seek your favor with gifts, the richest of the people. All glorious is the princess in her chamber, with robes interwoven with gold. In many colored robes she is led to the king, with her virgin companions following behind her. With joy and gladness, they are led along as they enter the palace of the king. In place of your fathers shall be your sons. You will make them princes in all the earth. I will cause your name to be remembered in all generations. Therefore, nations will praise you forever and ever. So far from Psalm 45. Let's also turn to the New Testament to John chapter 17. And this is another passage that, that reflects the intricate relationship within the Trinity between the Father and the Son. This is the prayer of Jesus before he was arrested and, and ultimately crucified. John 17, verse 1, When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. 
And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you, for I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them." And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost, except the son of destruction, that the the scriptures might be fulfilled." But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my, my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake I consecrate myself, that they may also be sanctified in truth. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given them, that... They may be one, even as we are one, I in them, and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me, and love them, even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me, because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, Even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them, and I in them. So far from God's word. Let's now also sing from Psalm 45. We'll sing stances 1, 2, and 3. Every Lord's Day in the afternoon, we return to the fundamentals, the essentials of the Christian and Reformed faith, and we use the Heidelberg Catechism as our guide for that study. This week, we find ourselves in Lord's Day 8, which covers the topic of the Trinity, and that's on page 524 of your Books of Praise. This is right in response to the last one which listed or or quoted the Apostles' Creed. And so Lord's Day 8 begins by asking, How are these articles in the Apostles' Creed divided? 
The answer is into three parts. The first is about God the Father and our creation. The second about God the Son and our redemption. The third about God the Holy Spirit and our sanctification. Since there is only one God, why do you speak of three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit? Because God has so revealed himself in his word that these three distinct persons are the one true eternal God. So far from the Heidelberg Catechism. Brothers and sisters in our Lord Jesus Christ, In the last several weeks, we've been looking at the foundations of the Christian faith, and we've seen that the Bible, God's Word, points us to the reality, first of all, of our sin and the fact that our sin has estranged us from God. And we've seen that that's the most serious and urgent problem in our lives. That's what the beginning of the Heidelberg Catechism is devoted to, emphasizing And we've seen also that the only hope of salvation is in the Savior that God has sent, Jesus Christ. That was two weeks ago. And then last week we saw that the the only way to Christ, the way to be counted with Christ, is by faith. So those are the fundamentals, the essentials, the broad outlines of, of Christian faith and what it means to be a Christian. And that's, you could say that's the big picture But that big picture is not the complete picture. As we grow as Christians, we want to to understand God's word better. We want to fill in our knowledge. We want to go deeper. We want to understand our faith uh, more, more fully. So we want to grow and become more mature as Christians. That's why the Heidelberg Catechism doesn't end there on Lord's Day 7. This is also important because the Christian church over the course of history has encountered many challenges to to things that Scripture teaches and that are essential for the gospel. And some of those challenges have done also a great deal of damage to the gospel. And so as the church over the centuries and and by the Holy Spirit's power, as the church searched Scripture and put things together to understand and teach what Scripture teaches, teaches, those answers were written down into creeds and confessions. Creeds and confessions are essentially summaries of of the, the Christian faith and summaries of the doctrine of Scripture that are rooted in the Bible but presented in a way that that, it, that can be easily digested and understood by the world, by by people. And in our own day, it often happens that people will push back against the idea of creeds as if there's something that, that adds to what the Bible teaches. But in, in reality, we should recognize they're not meant to add to what Scripture teaches. They're in fact meant to defend and to safeguard what Scripture teaches. And so that's why our catechism now takes us to the oldest of the Christian creeds, the Apostles' Creed, which which is is the shortest also summary of of the Christian faith. And for the next several weeks, we'll be walking through the Apostles' Creed, the the basic storyline of Christianity and the storyline of the doctrine of Scripture. 
And, and brothers and sisters, this is something that we want to do, and not just once, but over and over again. This is how we grow mature. This is how our faith grows deeper and our knowledge also more rooted into what God's Word teaches. We don't want to be the kind of Christians that can be tossed around easily by the winds and waves of doctrine. That's, what, that's the expression that Paul uses. So every year again, as we reflect on the Christian faith, the essentials of the Christian faith, we work our way through the Apostles' Creed to grow deeper, to understand better. One of the most difficult and controversial struggles in the early Christian church had to do with this doctrine of the Trinity. What does God reveal about himself in Scripture? What is this relationship between the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit which we read about in Scripture? How do we reckon with the fact that Scripture teaches that God is one and yet we find God manifested in these three separate persons. Are there, in fact, three gods? Or are they three dimensions to the one God? These are different answers that people have given. And the Trinity, it's a hard doctrine for, for most Christians, all Christians, to understand. And so it often tends to be one that ministers will overlook, or that even Christians, as they share their faith, as they talk about their faith with one another, the Trinity is not a doctrine that comes up often in conversation. We find it confusing, and so we tend to avoid it. We can't wrap our minds around it. And I should say, just as a heads up, that's not going to change. We won't be able to wrap our minds around it. Our God is beyond our ability to comprehend. And and really, that shouldn't come as any surprise to us that God is beyond our understanding. Really, that's exactly what we should expect. It would be surprising if God could be fully comprehended by us. But we, so we do, we don't want to try to explain or or logically rationalize what Scripture says about the inner workings of the Trinity. That's far beyond our ability to understand. But we do want to be able to see what Scripture does teach about the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And we want to try and put it together as best as we can so that we can at least rightly know who God is uh, insofar as He reveals Himself. So the theme for this sermon then is the Trinity, and I titled the sermon The Mysterious, Glorious Truth About God, and especially emphasizing this is the truth about God. I'll first try and just define and explain what the doctrine of the Trinity is, what it says, what it means, and then I want to show how and and where you find that in Scripture And then finally, I want to talk about how that affects our relationship with God and and how it makes the gospel precious and glorious. Now, the first thing that should be said is the word Trinity is not found in Scripture. And that fact alone makes makes many people uncomfortable with, with this doctrine, and understandably so. We, we believe that God's word alone carries the authority to define what our faith looks like. It defines our doctrine. But just because the word Trinity isn't found there doesn't automatically make the doctrine unbiblical. The word Trinity is, is just an attempt to put together different things that God does 
teach about himself in his word. So let me just state what the doctrine means, and then I'll go and show where it comes from, or at least some of the passages where it comes from. The doctrine of the Trinity is simply this. There is one God, God is one, and yet at the same time within God, three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. I'm sure that doesn't come as a surprise to any of you. And all three are true, eternally, equally God. The Athanasian Creed does an amazing job of of putting this all together and summarizing this doctrine. Uh, And it says, We worship one God in Trinity and Trinity in unity without confusing the persons. That's one way that people can, can try to logically explain this doctrine. They confuse the person, saying they're really all one person, or, it says, dividing the substance. In other words, saying that there's three gods. We don't do either of those. So we can't say there's three gods, nor can we say they're all just one person. The Athanasian Creed also says the Father is God, the Son God, and the Holy Spirit God, and yet there are not three gods, but one God. And finally, it teaches that the relationships between the Father, Son, and Spirit are not all equal or the same. The Father is not begotten, nor is He proceeding. He just is. The Son, that's not true of the Son. The Son is begotten from the Father. And the Spirit isn't begotten, but proceeding from both Father and Spirit. And son. So the relationships within the Trinity are not all equal. They're not all the same. We, we sometimes tend to want Father and Son and Holy Spirit to all be so perfectly equal. And in terms of their essence, they are. But the relationships between are not symmetrical. Even though there is not a difference in greatness or majesty between any of the persons. So that's the doctrine of the Trinity. Here's where that doctrine comes from. First, Scripture teaches that God is one. It's one of the clearest and oldest doctrines in Scripture. Deuteronomy 6, verse 4, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. This is true in both the Old Testament and the New Testament. 1 Timothy 2, verse 5, There is one God and one mediator between God and man, the, the man Jesus Christ. So that point is made all over Scripture. There is one God. Christianity is not like Hinduism with its many gods. There's only one, and we worship Him. And yet at the same time, we discover that the Lord Jesus is called God. And the Holy Spirit is called God. And these aren't just different manifestations of God, as in sometimes God appears in the form of the Father, and sometimes He appears in the form of the Son, and sometimes in the Spirit. That's not what you find in Scripture. These aren't just different manifestations of God, but they are unique persons. We know that because we see they have relationships with one another. So, for example, Jesus prays to the Father. We saw that in John 17. He prays to the Father. He was sent by the Father. He obeys the Father. He's called the Son of the Father, but not the Father Himself. And yet we notice Jesus is clearly God. He's worshipped in several places in Scripture, and He accepts that worship, which would be blasphemy for anyone but God to do. 
At his baptism, God said to him, the Father said to him, This is my beloved Son. In several places, Paul calls him God. Just one example, Titus 2, verse 13, he says, We wait for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. In Hebrews, Christ is called the radiance of the glory of God. In many places, Jesus calls himself the Son of God. In John 10, Jesus says, I and the Father are one. John 17, the Lord Jesus prayed to God the Father, and he spoke, we read about this, he spoke of the glory that they had together in eternity, which only God could have. And in fact, the Lord Jesus was even crucified for exactly this reason, because he made himself out to be God. He made himself out to be equal with God. And you see some of the same things in Scripture with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is also sent by the Father. He isn't the Father. He isn't the Son. He is a unique person. He's called He, not It. He can can be grieved, which is something that only belongs to a person. And yet He's the Spirit of God. When He acts, it's God acting. So what we see from from these things is that... The Holy Spirit and the Son and the Father are all God, and yet they're distinct, different persons. So what do you do with scriptural evidence like that? And there's more. If you look at the Old Testament again from the perspective of the New Testament, you discover these things were already revealed there, even though perhaps to a lesser degree. Already in Genesis 1, you have God speaking in the plural, let us make man in our image. In the Psalms and in other places, you discover that the Messiah, the Savior who is promised, is none other than God himself. In in Isaiah 9, the child who be born is called mighty God. In some of the Psalms, you, you discover that God sends the Messiah, so God sends him, and yet he himself is God. Psalm 45 is one of the most interesting psalms. That's why we read it together. As you read through, it's a, it's a song of praise to the king. And yet, as you're reading through, he's given divine names. And, and the psalmist even says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. And therefore, God, your God, has anointed you. So you have this Messiah sent by God and, yet anoint, and, and anointed by God and yet is God himself. So many Jews understood already by the time of Christ that there was something divine about the Messiah, even though they didn't understand what exactly to make of that. So that's what you find in Scripture. You have God the Father, Christ His Son, the Holy Spirit, and they're all presented as God, even though they're unique individuals who relate to one another. And you see this most clearly when you see them all together. For example, at the Lord Jesus' baptism in Matthew 3, you have Jesus being baptized, God the Father speaking from heaven, saying, this is my beloved Son, and the Holy Spirit descending on Jesus in the form of a dove. All three together, and yet all three, clearly God, and yet there is one, God. So again, what do we make of this? What do we do with the testimony that Scripture gives us? How do we seek to to understand this? And finally, if there's any doubt left, let me throw one last 
a couple of texts. Uh, you have texts that speak of God as Father, Son, and Spirit all together. There's a number of these from Jesus himself even in the Gospel of Matthew and from Paul and from Peter. Take Matthew 28. Jesus commands his disciples, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. There you find them all together. Or 2 Corinthians 13 verse 14. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. That's, again, all three persons together. So finally, let me ask one more time. What do you do with this testimony from Scripture. And some would say, well, we need to rationalize this so that it makes sense to us. Well, here's the thing. The doctrine of the Trinity is often caricatured as a human attempt to rationalize what God is like, to explain God. But brothers and sisters, that is exactly the opposite of what the doctrine of the Trinity sets out to do. And we need to understand this. The doctrine of the Trinity is not meant to logically explain God or rationalize what God is like. Instead, it exists to safeguard what Scripture teaches from attempts to rationalize what God is like. In Scripture, we're confronted with this God who's one and yet three in a way that we cannot fathom. We can't wrap our minds around that. And as, as human beings, we, we want, we have this drive to understand and to logically put things together. We don't like the fact that God is beyond our ability to understand. So the temptation for us is to find some way to rationalize it, find some way to explain it. And what that inevitably does is it will undermine one part of Scripture or another. We cannot rationalize God. And really, should that come as any surprise to us? Did we really think that we, as creatures, would be able to rationalize our Creator to try and fit Him into our minds? Yet that's the temptation, and that's what so many have attempted to do. Some try to explain this away by saying Jesus isn't really God, but Scripture clearly speaks of Him as God and calls Him God. Others try to explain this away by saying, really, the Father and Son and Spirit are just different manifestations, different sides, different angles to God. But that's, again, not what we find in Scripture. They speak to one another. They relate to one another. In fact, you read in John 17, they even love one another. Different manifestations or angles don't love one another. And many other attempts have been made to try and force God into this framework that we can understand. We want to put God into a box that we can carry him around in. But if you think about it, it's foolishness to try to do this to God. Do we really think that we would be able to comprehend God? And that's why we insist on the doctrine of the Trinity. It's not an attempt to logically explain God so that we can make him understandable. It's exactly the opposite. It's an attempt to safeguard what Scripture teaches about who God is, even though 
It's beyond our understanding. Because the church in the early centuries, as they struggled through this, and as they realized that, that Arians and others who, who spoke of God differently were preaching an entirely different gospel, the church recognized that the only right response to a God that we cannot understand is to just accept that this is who he is. Not to try and make him something that he's not, just for our logical satisfaction. Really, for creatures to try and explain what God is like, it would be sort of like if you have a scientist studying some, some bacteria on a little Petri dish through, through a microscope, and there on the dish, the bacteria are looking back up to God and, and saying, well, this is what, what this, this scientist is like, and this is why he's studying us. It's far beyond our ability to comprehend. So why would we believe that we could wrap our minds around God? If you have a God that you can comprehend, then I say he's not uh, truly God. The only reason we can understand in, really anything about God is because we're made in his image and because he's revealed himself uh, to that extent to us. But he's still God. We shouldn't be surprised that he's beyond our ability to uh, understand. In fact, we're talking really about the God who created the universe, the universe we live in, and even the universe we can't comprehend. How do you comprehend infinity, which is a reality in, in our universe? How does motion happen? How can light be particle and wave? We haven't yet wrapped our minds around the universe that God created, how much less around the God who created it. So when we're confronted in Scripture with a God who's beyond our understanding, we should resist that, that impulse that we have within us to, to sacrifice some parts of Scripture to try and make God more understandable, to fit him into a box. Instead, we should simply confess what Scripture teaches, knowing and indeed even expecting that God would be beyond our ability to, to, to comprehend. That's what the doctrine of, this, uh, of Trinity sets out to do. But just because the doctrine of the Trinity is beyond our ability to understand, it doesn't mean that it doesn't impact us or make a difference for, for our faith. The reality is we worship a triune God, and, and, and that's also how we relate to him. And, and you can see this in several different dimensions. First, we live in a world that was created by a triune God, and our world reflects that reality. Consider this. God created us, human beings, as relational human beings. We have relationships with one another in this world because we are created by a God who is inherently relational. He relates even within himself. He's always been a God who relates, who loves, who has relationship even within himself since eternity. God the Father and God the Son, and you see this, the Lord Jesus says this in John 17, they have loved one another and related to one another since eternity and rejoiced in one another since eternity. And that, that eternal, beautiful, perfect relationship within God that they had together, it's the foundation for all other relationships. Only a God who relates 
would create a world full of relationships and create a people to relate to him and and himself even desire to have that relationship with us. So understand this, brothers and sisters. God did not create you or any of us because he was lonely. He did not create us because God needed company out there in eternity. Within himself, God already has the most perfect, loving, beautiful, satisfying relationship imaginable. And he's had that since eternity. So he created us in order to share that relationship and glory with us, to invite us into that relationship. It's because God is a loving God, loving since eternity, that he created a creation that's overflowing with that same love. In 1 John 4, verse 8, it says that anyone who does not know, does not know excuse me, anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. Consider that. If you don't love, you don't know God because God is love. Love is that profoundly etern- love, love is profoundly and eternally inherent to who God is, because God within himself has that perfect bond of love between Father, Son and Spirit. And consider this also: God created a world in which you find unity in diversity, which we call harmony. I'm not a fan of analogies for the Trinity because they always go wrong at some point. But there is one analogy that was designed by God himself. It doesn't explain the mystery, and it isn't a perfect analogy in every respect, but it's a reflection of that mystery. And that analogy is the relationship between husband and wife. Genesis 1 verse 27, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Though man and wife are two individuals, yet they are also in a profound and mysterious way truly one. They're spiritually united and so closely related that you cannot even relate to one without relating to the other. Again, it's not a perfect analogy, especially in a broken world where that relationship isn't whole like it ought to be. But it is a reflection of God who is plurality within unity. The the Trinity is also the foundation for the unity and diversity that you see around, all over God's creation. When unity and diversity come together, we call it harmony Islam, believing in a God that is only, only one and reductionistically one, that God not only remains distant to human people, almost even unrelatable, but Islam also seeks to eliminate diversity. It seeks a world that's, that's not just harmonious, but really homogenous. There is no diversity Then you can have the other extreme, Hinduism with its plethora, an uncountable number of gods. And it knows only diversity, chaotic music, chaotic colors, without the unity to harmonize it. We see a reflection of God in the world that God has created. These are generalizations, of course, of those two religions, but they are fair generalizations. They've been observed by many people, and they're reflections of the gods that they believe in. 
God created a world, though, of harmony, where there's unity in diversity. So the universe that God created reflects the God who created it. But the reality of the Trinity doesn't only manifest itself in creation and in the universe. It also is clear and, 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 uh, and manifested to us in our relationship with God. Our salvation, our relationship with God is shaped by the fact that God is three in one. Theologians speak of this as the economic trinity, which simply means we can not only recognize uh, the reality of the trinity by how Scripture speaks of who God is in himself, but also by the way that each person works for our salvation, and so consequently how we also relate to them. And you can see that also in the Heidelberg Catechism. It speaks of God the Father and our creation, God the Son and our redemption, and God the Holy Spirit and our sanctification. So even though we don't understand, we can't comprehend how the Trinity works, so to speak, nevertheless, we do relate to our God as triune. We pray to God the Father in the name of God the Son by the power of God the Spirit. Jesus Christ, the the Son of God, died to save us from the wrath of God the Father. And so even though we can't comprehend the Trinity, we do relate to God as triune, and we rightly can understand our salvation in terms of the Trinity. And consider this also then, brothers and sisters, because the Son of God came to save us from the wrath of the Father, He also now invites us into that perfect bond of love, that has always existed between Father and Son. That's what he prays for in John 17, that we would also share the love that he has had between himself and and the Father from eternity. In fact, let me say it even more strongly, that's what salvation is. Salvation is being reconciled to God and invited into the bond of love between the Father and the Son, being invited into to share that same bond of love. It's being welcomed into that relationship between Father and Son with Jesus as our head. So we read earlier from John 17, and consider that that beautiful, perfect relationship that the Lord Jesus had with, with his Father and the intimate way that the Lord Jesus speaks with his Father. It's a very beautiful and intimate prayer. It's like reading a, a, a love letter that you stumble upon. And consider this, because of Jesus' work, dying for our sins and living the perfect life to reconcile us to God, he brings us into that same perfect relationship of love that he's always had with his Father. So the Trinity not only makes it possible for us to understand the gospel, it's also what makes the gospel so beautiful, so glorious, and so precious. To use an analogy, through the gospel, we are adopted not just to a single parent, but we are adopted into a family, a family that is already overflowing with love and delight in one another. We're adopted into a relationship that already exists and is already overflowing with love. Indeed, we were created for that very reason, to share 
in, in the love of God which overflows out of himself. We are created to share in that and treasure it and delight in him. That's what we are created for and that's also what we are saved in order to do. And so, brothers and sisters, even though we, we don't fully understand God, certainly not on this side of eternity, we already have that bond of love here with God already, even though not yet perfectly, because that's, that, that will only happen on the final day. But already now, the love of God is communicated to us by the Holy Spirit. This changes us. It transforms us. It gives us a delight and, and a treasure to, to enjoy already now and to look forward to for eternity. It already fills us with a love for Christ and for the Father who loved us first. That's what First John emphasizes very explicitly. So brothers and sisters, this is our God. We don't fully understand him. He is still shrouded in mystery. His ways are higher than our ways, and that's a a good thing. We shouldn't expect any different when it comes to God. He reveals himself then as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, one God, yet three persons. And we don't need to comprehend that. We don't need to rationalize it. We can take him at his word without needing to, to fully understand him. But this mystery isn't something that we should avoid talking about or or even thinking about just because we can't understand it. This is our God, and we see it reflected in the world that he's made. We see it in the salvation that he's given to us in Christ. And this is also, then, how we today even relate to him. And so we look forward to an eternity of discovering more about God, of mining the riches of his glory and uncovering more and more of his glory and discovering also the depths of his infinite love that has always existed between Father and Son and Spirit. The Trinity is a mystery, but it's a glorious and it's a beautiful mystery for Christians to treasure and to look forward to treasuring for all eternity. Amen.